All right, we are going to begin in 1 Peter chapter 1. So you can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. As we said last week, the main issue and the main topic of 1 Peter is the issue and the topic of suffering. And that's a theme that we have seen over and over again as we've looked at the epistles, and because that was what was relevant to their times. Uh, there were Jewish people that had come out of the Jewish religion. They were being persecuted by their own Jewish brothers and sisters, as Paul talked about in First uh, Thessalonians. And then you have these that were in primarily Gentile areas and regions that were being uh, persecuted by their fellow brothers and sisters and the Roman Empire at large. So to be a believer in the first century was a whole lot more difficult than it is to be a believer uh, in the times that we have lived in. Uh, for Paul himself suffered persecution, sufferings everywhere that he went, that he was in danger for his life. All the apostles, uh, except one, gave their lives uh, in martyrdom for Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. So to be a Christian, especially in the first century and in many parts of our world even today, to be a Christian means you have signed up for suffering and persecution because Jesus says, if the world hates me, don't, don't be surprised that the world will hate you as well. And that's what we're talking about here in 1 Peter. So we said that 1 Peter was written to uh, encourage the believers in the midst of their suffering. And encouraging the believers in the midst of their suffering is to point to Jesus Christ. That don't think it's strange that you're suffering because Christ himself suffered. And it is an honor to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And there's great reward for you from God for sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And also the most important aspect of suffering is how you respond to suffering and how you live your life in front of even your persecutors and the world at large that is looking at you. And that's what we find here as Peter's encouraging, and we'll see these as we go throughout our, our letter today, is that he always points them to Jesus. Jesus is the foundation for everything. Jesus is their hope of ultimate victory, and that how they live their lives speaks as a witness to the world around them. So let's uh, go through uh, today, and we're going to kind of follow the outline that we had last week, and that is on your paper today. As we enter 1 Peter chapter 1, we see verses 1 and 2, and that is the salutation. Uh, and that reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of spirit, for the obedience of Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So the salutation has theological impact. It teaches us even here about God and about Jesus and about God's people. And the emphasis that Peter makes here just in these first two verses about uh, the believer's election, about there being strangers and exiles in the world, the saving work of, of God, the sanctifying work of God, uh, points them to Jesus. 
And that's their ultimate hope. And the one thing that we'll see, and I mentioned it last week, but things to notice is that when we read Paul, he was very theologically heavy. Now, he did give, you know, practical uh, advice for living the Christian life, but he was very theological. He was always talking about Jesus and the mysteries in Christ. And then when we read James in our previous letter, that was very practical, not very theological heavy, but very practical. And you can even see here that Peter combines the two together. So Peter begins this letter with the theological impacts. He doesn't start with their suffering. He starts by putting their eyes on who they are because of God and what Jesus has done for them. So these are some of the emphasis that we find here. Their election, their being exiles, tying them to the old covenant people of God by showing that they are the people of God today in the world. As we move on from chapter 1, verse 3, and this next section would go all the way down to chapter 2, verse 10, uh, this is, again, highlighting God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Verses 3 through 12 is a, it's almost like, it has very hymnic qualities, like a hymn, like a praise unto God. And it begins in verse number 3 with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. So, Peter begins with this blessing unto God. First, with an emphasis on their sure future before turning to their sufferings. And their sufferings have refining value, pointing again to the future, this time with a focus on Christ. This salvation brought through Christ was prophesied by the prophets after reading this section through and identifying these characteristics, you may want to go back and read it again to get a sense of its majesty. And these are just uh, on top of the truths that it has here. This blessing and, and hymn to God is it's just beautiful wording. It's just written in a beautiful way. So let's read beginning in verse number 3 of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So again, he's putting their mind on what they have in Christ and what Jesus has done. He's, he's grounding them and giving their foundation, the resurrection of Jesus, their inheritance that is imperishable, that our inheritance, our blessings, does not come from this world, it comes from God. The blessings of this world fade away. Everything we work for and gain in this life ends up perishing, but the inheritance of the saints is imperishable and unfading, and it is waiting for them. And even if they give their lives for Jesus Christ, they have an inheritance waiting for them in heaven. Then he goes on to say in verse number six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So notice the difference between now here for a little while and the inheritance that is stored up for them in heaven forever. But in this moment, they are grieved by their various trials. Verse 7 says, so that the tested genuineness of their faith, much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So he's showing them that their, the trying of their faith actually refines them and it comes forth as, as pure gold. And then they talk about Jesus and says, who they have not seen, yet you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him and you rejoice with joy inexpressible, unspeakable, and full of glory. He says in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So he's saying that, that Jesus Christ, that the prophets prophesied about him, and the Spirit that was in them spoke about the sufferings that Jesus would endure. And again, he's relating it to their sufferings. So we see here in these first uh, 12 verses how he's grounding them in their faith. They're going through various trials, but in your trials, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. And as he moves into the next section where he's going to pick up different themes about living out our faith in the world around us, and he's going to talk about even in hostile times, even in times of persecution, don't lose sight of Jesus. Don't lose sight of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. Don't lose your testimony. You know, and I think these letters speak, as I said last week, more relevant than in, in our times today than maybe it has in our, our lifetime for, especially, I know definitely in my lifetime, because it's grounding us that even though the world around us changes, God doesn't. Even though the world around us may be hostile to our faith and our beliefs, that doesn't affect who we are in Jesus Christ. Though the world would rage in persecution, it doesn't change the power of Jesus Christ. And we should not let the things that are external to us change the witness of Christ and the testimony that is in us. For our testimony in the midst of the world will actually speak louder to the world when we live differently and we respond differently to them. So that's why leaving this uh, blessing of God here, he goes into the call to live holy as God's people. So in this next section that takes us from chapter 1, verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 10, the emphasis is on God's call and character, on Christ's redeeming work. Peter begins by reminding them that the God's call was to a holy way of life, especially in the relationship among the community. God's goal is a spiritual house, a spiritual temple. That's what the believers are. The believers are a spiritual temple built up unto God, where holy people offer spiritual sacrifices. And he concludes in verses 9 and 10 by using language from Exodus and Hosea. He reassures these Gentile believers that they are the new covenant continuation of the people of God. And that is a major theme. And some of this language you find, especially when Jesus, when it talks about Jesus being the chief cornerstone and God is building a, a new spiritual temple. Of course, we remember in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus walks out of the temple in Jerusalem and he pronounces judgment upon that temple. And he looks at the, the Jewish people and he says, 
your house, your temple, is left unto you desolate. So that physical building, that physical temple, was not going to be God's plan going forward. Jesus was the true Father's house. He was the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelled within Him. And now the believers in Jesus, the church made up of Jew and Gentile, they would be apart from the building of the temple. They would be a spiritual temple. Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to talk about how the Jew and Gentile, the middle wall of partition is broken down. And that the believers come together and are built up into a spiritual temple with Christ being the cornerstone. So Jesus, and it was talked about again in Hosea and other places, but Jesus walks up to the scribes and the Pharisees in his day, and he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And he spoke of the temple of his body. And then he mentioned that God, and he points back to the Old Testament, that God was laying the foundation of a new temple. And that Jesus was the chief cornerstone in which the whole new temple of God would be built upon. In essence, saying that God was moving on from that Old Testament temple with its Old Testament priesthood and sacrifices, just as we talked about in Hebrews, and moving into a spiritual temple. Where on the day of Pentecost, God took residence within His spiritual temple. And He filled the believers in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. And the church, the believers, became a living, breathing, moving temple and habitation of God in this world. And that's the temple that is still there. So even though the physical temple was rendered obsolete and void at the death of Jesus, and in AD 70 it was totally destroyed, not to be built again to this day, the temple of God, the true spiritual temple of God, still remains. And Peter's going to emphasize that to these believers, that this is who you are. So the call to live as God's holy people. In verse number 13 of chapter 1, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So there's this idea, and this is the second time he's mentioned this revelation of Jesus, there's this idea of vindication. That even though the world hates you and the world persecutes you, Christ will vindicate you. Even though the world puts you to death, you will reign with Christ. Even though you're seen as nothing in the world, you are kings and priests in the kingdom of God and will rule and reign with Christ. And when we get to the book of Revelation, we'll see that theme come even more into view. The vindication of those who were persecuted by the world. And that even through death and persecution, they now reign with Christ. So that's why he says, set your hope on that which is coming. Not just this world, not just this world, but beyond this world. And then in verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all of your conduct. For it's written, be holy, for I am holy. For if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So there he's using that exile language again. So he's saying God is holy, and as God's people, he has made you holy. So go and live that way in front of the world. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed 
from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in these last times for your sake. And he goes on in verse number 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that's the gospel, for sincerely brotherly love, love one another earnestly. So he's ending this little section here with how we interact in the believing community. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, the living and abiding word of God. So he's calling them to live the life that Christ has set them apart for. And then he further emphasizes this by going into chapter 2. He tells them to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, to long and desire for the pure spiritual milk that they may grow up in their salvation. And then as you come to him, verse number 4, as a living stone, he's the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. That's Christ. He was rejected. But yet he was the living stone. And he says in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a spiritual house, a spiritual temple. So the believers are a spiritual temple, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the present day priesthood of God. The believers who are built up a spiritual house, a house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. And he goes on to quote in the Old Testament, I lay in Zion, the chief stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. But those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And that speaks to those who had rejected Christ. They rejected the cornerstone, and yet instead of finding safety, then they would be crushed by that stone. It would become be a stone of stumbling and offense. And Jesus quotes these same words. In fact, this is quoted several times. Jesus quotes it in his lifetime. Uh, and then the apostles, standing in the same place as Jesus, speaking to the same chief priests and Pharisees in the book of Acts, they quote the same thing. Uh, bringing condemnation again on that temple and that system, those who had rejected uh, the chief cornerstone. And then in verse 9, he echoes in verse number 9 of chapter 2, uh, this, again, people of God language that comes from the Old Testament. You are a chosen race, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, the peculiar people, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, that echoes back to Hosea as well. So he's quoting directly from the Old Testament scriptures there. So he sets their foundation for their holiness and as the people of God. Now, as we move further along in chapter 2, going from chapter 2, uh, verse 11, all the way through chapter 4, these next two chapters here, 2.11 through 4.11, God's people among the Gentiles. This is their life in 
exile. Again, exile means they're God's people, but they're living in a seemingly foreign land where people, where they're being persecuted for their faith, where they have to live out their faith in a unique and true way. God's people among the Gentiles. In 2.11 and 3 through 7, we find the call particularized in various settings. And these various settings are going to take place in, number one, the government which they are under, the government here being the Roman Empire and, you know, the Caesars. Uh, Then we find in the issue of a slave and a master, the issue of a wife and a husband, and finally he's going to speak to the husband. So he turns to a lengthy section focusing on the exemplary way of life which believers must display in a hostile context. He begins with the opening exhortation to live good lives among the pagans. And then he goes into these three areas, government, uh, master and slave, and then household, husband, and wife. Those are the three areas. And he urges submission in those areas. And he emphasizes in those areas... Again, how the conduct is for the Christians to live. And, you know, what he says here, it can kind of, kind of have us scratching our heads. And it's almost like, well, you just say we should just stand back and take whatever comes our way. And there's been a lot of people throughout history that, you know, have had issues, you know, with almost the, the, the pacifist language and the mindset that is used here for, obviously, the natural inclination is we need to fight back. You know, we we need to take up swords and fight back. And the surprising words is that, you know, the New Testament doesn't teach that. (laughs) You know, and I, I know that goes against our way of thinking. It goes against my way of thinking. But again, we have to deal with the text as it's presented and what Peter and the apostles told these first century believers. You know, he never tells them to, to raise arms and fight back. He tells, them, he tells them to lay down their lives. And to me, that's not very encouraging. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, what kind of response is that? But it's the response that they take back to Jesus. Jesus didn't come to raise an insurrection against Rome. You know, he didn't come to fight against the government rulers there. He came to give his life for the sheep and to be an example. And that, that's what these believers, and that's what these writers here are over and over again referring to, is the sufferings of Christ. So let's read this and see if we can pick up on, on any of that. So he starts in verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Again, he's saying, I know you're exiles. You're living in a foreign land, hostile to your faith. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. So notice he's he's indicating they're going to speak against you as evildoers. You as Christians, they're going to call you evil. But yet live in such an honorable way that they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That they will ultimately see your example and turn to God for it or from it. Verse 13 Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or as governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, which is what government and leaders are supposed to do. You know, that's the purpose of 
human government, you know, punish the evil to praise the good. Now, we know that doesn't always happen, and it wasn't happening in these days as well. Uh, for we see throughout history, the Roman Empire and the emperors and the governors, we see how unjustly the governor of Judea treated Jesus in the, you know, the unfair trials and, you know, in connection with the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests. But he says in verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, that's hard words when you're living in an empire that is anti-God, where the emperor desires himself to be worshipped as God. You know, you can look at all of the, the Roman emperors, uh, you know, in, in the first century, you know, even leading up to Nero and beyond, they all saw themselves as deity. They all saw themselves as God. Nero heralded himself as Lord and Savior. You know, they had their imprints and, and their own statues of themselves all over the place and in the different areas of the providence. So they wanted to be worshipped as gods themselves. But yet, it seems that Peter's saying, you need to honor them, even though. So let's continue reading. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust masters. Now, our, our inclination is, you know, get out from your unjust master. But again, that's not what Peter says. He says, for it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, none of us would think that's a good and gracious thing. Again, this type of teaching just goes countercultural to what our natural instinct is. He says, what credit is it if you sin and you're beaten for it, but if you do good and suffer for it? That is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then he goes on to talk about the attitude of Jesus in the midst of his suffering. So that's what he says to the servants for the masters. And then in chapter number 3, as we go into chapter number 3, verse 1, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, even if, you know, you have a woman that is married to a non-believer, she says, honor, be subject to your own husbands, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So again, it's living out your faith, even in the face of injustice and unjust people over you. And then he talks about being adorned, not with outward things, but, you know, the issue is your heart. Uh, so he's speaking to the wives that may be under non-believing husbands. And then in verse number seven, he speaks to the husbands. Now, the connotation here is that these husbands are not the unjust husbands or the non-believing husbands, because they probably wouldn't be reading this anyway, but these are to the believing husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker, probably the physical weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you. 
So he says to honor the woman because she is a heir with you in Christ, an heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered, that you too would be in perfect unity of faith. So he speaks into all of these different contexts in the, quote, pagan world and situations that people find themselves in. And what he encourages is live true to God, honor, let people see your testimony, your heart, and your good works. Then in verse number eight, he turns to finally all of you. So he's given specific instances, and now he gives a generalized call. So 3, 8 through 4, 11, the call generalized in the face of hostility. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he gives another uh, quotation. Um, Verse 13, if we look down in verse 13 of chapter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. So even in the suffering and the persecution, there may be somebody that wants to know about your life. And he says, be ready to testify. Be ready to give your testimony. Be ready to give an answer to the hope that is in you when people ask. But then he says, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slander, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for do good than for doing evil. And then in verse 18, he goes back to Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So he even, Peter even sees the suffering of the church as almost, you know, I don't want to say this in a way because Christ is the only saving and atoning sacrifice, but almost through the sacrifice of the Christians, they're the righteous suffering for the unrighteous that the unrighteous could come to Christ for what Jesus did himself. So again, he appeals back to Christ. Then in verse 19 and 20, we go into a really, really weird, uh, really weird or at least weirdly worded verse of Scripture that has been speculated many, many times of what in the world does this mean? Um, You know, so let's just read that. We won't spend a lot of time, but it's just very unusual words. But he's talking about Jesus dying, the righteous for the unrighteous, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Then he says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Let's see, let me move my slide a little bit. I'm not there yet. Okay. Which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the waters. Uh, baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of dirt, but an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. So he makes this statement here in verse 19 and 20 that Christ seemingly went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And these spirits were the ones who did not obey 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, this is a really weird passage of Scripture, and I'm like, why even put this right here? For what does it mean? To read it as it's written here, and so there's been several ways of speculation. Let me just give you three of them. Who are these? First, the answer to questions, what's it speaking of about Jesus as he went and proclaimed? What does it mean he went and proclaimed? Secondly, who are the spirits that Jesus proclaimed to? And three, what prison were they in? Why were they in, in prison? And verse 20 leads us on the fact that whoever these spirits in prison were, they were connected with those who did not obey in the days of Noah, but were taken away in the flood. So this is a, this is a really weird passage, okay? This is it's just a really weird passage of Scripture. But answering those questions, how did, where, where, what, and how did Jesus proclaim? Who were the spirits in prison? How are they connected with Noah? Well, there's three various views. Um, and again, the way I handle these difficult passages, again, look at what everything we've read, and don't get bogged down in trying to figure out these things, but look at the overall message of what it's, of what it's talking about. But anyway, view number one. Jesus ascended into hell between his death and resurrection and preached to the people who were in hell, specifically mentioning those who had perished in the flood of Noah's day. That Jesus descended, in fact, in the you know, Apostles' Creed, it's all about Jesus ascended down into hell. You know, I've had somebody ask me, you know, the past two Easter's, and it just hadn't worked out this way. I was going to try to do it this Easter, but everything got messed up this Easter. But he's like, what happened between, where was Jesus between his death and resurrection? Where did he go? What did he do? What happened? One of the, you know, beliefs throughout church history is that Jesus ascended in, or descended into hell and preached to the spirits who were in prison. Um, some people even see the preaching to the spirits in prison as he was actually giving them maybe a second chance at salvation or proclaiming himself um, and giving people a second chance. That's a, there's a couple of different views within number one. Number two is that Jesus descended to this prison and proclaimed victory not to human spirits, but to fallen angels who were kept in chains in prison. And Jesus went and proclaimed victory to those fallen angels who were bound. Now, 2 Peter chapter 2 does mention fallen angels uh, in a similar wording. 2 Peter 2, 4. So, either Jesus descended into hell and preached to human spirits, he descended uh, and preached to fallen angels, or three, you know, the wording of this causes us to read it that way. The third option that is out there is that Jesus himself physically did not go and preach, but Jesus, through God's Spirit, preached through Noah to the people of his day who would ultimately perish in the flood and end up in prison. So the connotation is, is that that Christ in the Spirit preached through Noah to the people in his day who would perish, who would later go on to be, after their death, to be put in prison. So those are three of your main 
views of 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. Uh, which one is right? I don't know. Uh, am I going to fight anybody who has either of these views? Not really. Um, this is just one of those things that is kind of a mystery. Um, you know, I don't know. It's just, I, I can't settle down on, on any one of those. I think, I think if you press me for an issue, you know, it would probably be that Christ through Noah preached to the people in his day who did not listen but ultimately perished and ate were saved. And I think that's what he's talking about here, that through the life of the believers, they're preaching to their persecutors who unless they repent will ultimately perish, but yet, like Noah and his family, the believers will be saved through the persecution and trials that they're going through. Um, and even 1 Peter 4, 6, um, I think uses a little bit you know, unusual wording to 1 Peter 4, 6 says, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So he's using dead as they're dead now, but before they were dead, the gospel was preached to them. Is this making any sense at all? Because it really doesn't to me, you know, even talking about it, um, because it's just very confusing. But he's using dead and he's using those in prison as their current state. But before they were dead and before they were in prison, they had the gospel preached to them. And that Christ through Noah preached unto them, even though they perished, Noah and his family were saved um, out of that. I don't know what all of that was worth right there, but uh, go Google it and do your own research and come tell me what the answer is on that. But anyway, just... I like to look at the overall context. The overall context is how they're living in the face of hostility. And just as Noah and his family was brought safe, then they too, the believers here, will be brought safe as well through ultimately Jesus Christ himself. So there's that. Uh, chapter 4. Chapter 4, again, he's appealing since Christ suffered in the flesh. And I'll just kind of skip around a little bit. You know, again, Christ suffered in the flesh. He's going appealing unto Christ again. Um, verse 3 of chapter 4, For in the time past um, you did what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Um, don't be surprised that they uh, persecute you when you don't join in with the world anymore and they think you strange and they revile you. Um, Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. The believers expected some sort of a vindication or resolution or end in their day. He says, the end of all things is at hand. So there, and you read this throughout all of the New Testament, there is a imminence of this coming judgment, this salvation to be revealed, this vindication for the believers and their persecution. Um, so he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, uh, keep loving one another, show hospitality to one another without grumbling as you've received God's grace, uh, use it to serve one another, be good stewards of the grace of God, speak as the oracles of God. So he's encouraging them to do all of these things that God may be glorified uh, through you or through Jesus Christ. So again, encouraging them in the face of hostility, here's how you live. Now going on to chapter 4, 12 through 5.14, through the end of the letter. We see two things here. Again, the exhortation to endure suffering, be steadfast, and then the closing 
of the letter. He starts in 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as something strange happened to you. So again, what's happening to you is not strange, so don't think it's strange that you're going through trials. But again, rejoice because you share in Christ's sufferings. Again, if you suffer in the name of Christ, then you are blessed in the Spirit. Again, he reemphasizes in verse 15, don't suffer as a murderer or evildoer, but as a Christian, for there's blessing in suffering as a Christian. He says in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. Um, that's a verse that there's several interpretations on. You know, some people say that's God's judgment. God's going to judge you know, his church first. You know, I think that's the judgment. I think this is speaking of the judgment and persecution of the world. That judgment persecution is going to begin at, with Christians, going to begin at the house of God. Um, so continue to obey the gospel that you would not be ashamed in that. Um, suffer according to God's will. Then when you go into chapter 5, he speaks specifically to those kind of uh, over the church, to the elders uh, in the church. He encourages the elders of the church to shepherd the flock of God in honesty and oversight with a pure heart, not for selfish gain, not domineering over those, but be examples to the flock um, so that they will receive uh, rewards when the chief shepherd appears. Verse number five of chapter five speaks to the younger. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. We should all uh, approach one another with humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. Cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. For the adversary is out there seeking someone to devour as a roaring lion. Uh, you know, resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in who you are in Christ. Uh, there are other people, other brothers and sisters, suffering the same persecutions throughout the world. And then he says, after you've suffered a while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. So again, keep your eyes on Jesus. So over and over again, he goes to these same themes. View suffering through the lens of Christ. Follow him as an example. No matter what the world does, God's going to give you the ultimate victory. He's going to vindicate you and your sufferings. He's the one that has true and, pure and true and total dominion over everyone. Watch your conduct in the world. Exercise your life in such a way uh, that you preach and that you are an example to those that you would come through uh, on the other side uh, as true people of God in the world. Uh, then just some greetings. Um, uh, you know, he's written to you, gives greetings from the church at Babylon, which is probably speaking of Rome. Uh, chosen Babylon sends you greetings. Mark sends greetings. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Um, unless coronavirus is going on, then don't kiss each other with the kiss of love. Uh, and then peace to all who are in Christ. He speaks a, a word of peace over those who are suffering persecution. So that's our walkthrough of 1 Peter. So you, hopefully you saw the themes, and as hopefully if you've read this week, you've seen the themes of suffering and relating that to Christ and how they live jump out at you. And, um, you know, some very challenging stuff and some things that are very practical uh, in, in our day as well.